Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast, where we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. On this show, I work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I'm talking to Dr. John Sue. We talk about John's perspectives on the contributing factors that led to the opioid crisis in America over the last 20 years, as well as how the crisis has touched John's life personally. After 28 years of clinical practice in pain and anesthesia, John became a physician on a mission to invent a product to help address the diversion of prescribed drugs, one of the root causes of opioid problems. As always, thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm really excited to be joined today by Dr. John Sue. John is an anesthesiologist and pain management physician who, after almost three decades of clinical experience, is now working on a novel invention to be able to combat the opioid crisis. And in addition to John's clinical experience, he has a lot of uh, business acumen and he's shared a little bit about some real estate endeavors and other things and healthcare policy. And I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. So John, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So to start us off, John, why don't you just give us a little bit of context for uh, your current clinical, well, I, I think your, I should say maybe prior clinical practice and what you're up to right now as far as the IPIL. Sure. Uh, I was an anesthesiologist uh, doing acute pain and was doing chronic pain on the side. I uh, have been uh, doing chronic pain for 28 years, acute uh, anesthesia for 28 years, and have been following the opioid crisis over the number of uh, the same number of years. The problem with the opioid crisis is that uh, it isn't getting better and it's getting worse. Government policy has changed things. The limit of opioid access has caused the push towards heroin and fentanyl. And so as I'm reaching the sunset of my career, I've decided to put my hat in to try to solve the problem. And I know that you mentioned there is th- this is something that hits close to home for you as well with, with regards to uh, opioid overdose specifically. So can you talk a little bit about the sort of the personal context for, for your mission in, in this uh, in this journey? Sure. Anesthesiologists have the highest rate of addiction within the medical society. So I had a colleague who eventually passed away from fentanyl uh, overdoses. And that made me a little leery of fentanyl. We had other colleagues who were addicted to fentanyl. And then the, the whole issue became, well, if doctors and nurses are getting addicted, why don't we use the technology to try to prevent some of that? So OmniCell and Pixis came out with their devices to prevent doctors from diverting opioids. And that has really dropped the number of physician overdoses, patient overdoses, to less than 800, do- 800 people per year in 6,250 hospitals in the US. So we know that secure storage of opioids is very, very important. And I, I know there's, in addition to you know your personal story, there's other, we'll call them uh, systemic factors that have contributed to over the last years, just the explosion of opioid prescription. So can you share a little bit about sort of your perspective on the broader context in terms of prescribing and insurance. And, you know, we mentioned the fifth vital sign. Wow. <laughs> You've opened up a Pandora's box at that point. 
about 20 years ago, the Joint Commission on Hospital Accreditation Organization, JCO, they basically came out with a mandate saying that no patient should have pain postoperatively. They said that the pain is a fifth vital sign. Well, that in addition to the Purdue issue that pr promoted the fact that opioids are not addictive. Well, those are two fallacies that I'd like to address right away. We've known for years that opioids are addictive. We look at the opium crisis and the opium wars in the 1830s, 1850s. Then we look at, you know, Caesar was using poppy seeds for heroin. So we've <laughs> so known- So this is a very old problem. Yeah, yes. And also it's always been a scheduled drug. Opioids are schedule three, schedule two. Uh, in, in the year 2017, I believe, hydrocodone was changed from schedule three to schedule two. So basically the bottom line is that opioids are addictive and they were misrepresented as not being addicted. Doctors were put, being put in jail for not prescribing enough opioids to take care of patients' pain. Really? Doctors were losing their license. I did not, not know that. That's, that's crazy. Well, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's not common sense. Yeah. You know, the doctor-patient relationship has gotten so distant. Yeah. And what's in the middle? Government policy. Other people who didn't go to medical school who are trying to tell me how to practice medicine. So that's the fifth vital sign problem. We had uncontrolled access to controlled substances. So more and more people were getting drugs. It was then that more people found that they were overdosing and dying. So in the last 20 years, we've had <laughs> double digit increases in the opioid overdose deaths with limited opioid access. So we know that limiting opioids isn't the solution. Mm -hmm. People have talked about Narcan as being the solution, but that's where people already overdosed. And then Suboxone, that's where people are already addicted. They're very helpful, they're needed. But what's been ignored is prevention. How do we prevent people from being dependent, then addicted, then abu uh, uh, abusers, then addicts? Yeah. So, so the, yep. Go ahead. the fifth vital sign was the start. And people will say that that's not the start. It's the doctor's fault. But we were mandated. And as a whole, doctors do what they're told. We don't want to go to jail. We don't want to lose our license. Government says this. So we're good rule followers. Yeah. So enter your solution. So talk a little bit about your transition. You know, you've obviously observed this clinically over the last almost three decades. And then t talk a little bit about the genesis of your idea to create a product uh, to start to help address this issue. So OmniCell and Pixis devices hold opioids in the hospital. They're class one FDA registered product. They prevent people from just taking 10 pills and taking those opioids and giving them to their friends and family. So I began to look at what happens at home. In the hospital, 6,250 6, hospitals, there's only about 800 people who die. 
when you use a child-resistant cap, that prevents kids from opening it, but kids are smarter. They can open them now. Yeah. And once you open it, you have access to all pills. It could be 90 pills. Yeah. But that doesn't prevent adults from opening it because they can open it. And if they open it, they get access to pills. So my concept was the root of the problem is lack of controlled access mm -hmm. and diversion. So I was at the bank one day and I was thinking about my colleague who died. And I was thinking, well, what happens if we had an ATM at home for opioids, my friend wouldn't have died. Mm -hmm. So I started to put together some ideas. Uh, I'm a computer geek. I have uh, several issues within medical devices. Uh, I love tampering. And then I love thinking outside the box. Over the last 20 years, as people have thought about opioid crisis, they thought, oh, it's just because it's too many opioids. Well, the knee-jerk reaction is to just limit opioids. Well, that hasn't worked out because the evidence has shown that limiting opioids causes people to go to heroin and fentanyl. And if they can't get those drugs, which are easier and cheaper, they commit suicide. Yeah. So over the last three years, consecutive, the life, expen life expectancy has dropped for the last three consecutive years because of this problem. And I think that bears repeating. So just to what you, what you just said is that because of the way that um, the, the problem is being approached from a policy standpoint, which is like shut off the source of opioids, what's happening is that people who are in pain, who need... Uh, who legitimately need acute pain relief are unable to get the the drugs that for a long time have been used to treat that. And as a result are driven to harder drugs and sometimes even to suicide. Absolutely. And the pendulum has swung the other way. You break a hip, you break a femur. They're saying, oh, just take Tylenol. Oh, just take Motrin for a maximum of a week. We're only going to give you opioids for three days. Well, what happens if you're still hurting? Yeah. Are we supposed to allow our pain, uh, allow our patients to be in pain? That's not why I became a doctor. I became a doctor to treat pain. That's my specialty. Yeah, absolutely. And and this one actually hits close to <laughs> close to home for me. I actually I had a uh, an injury in my neck in July where I was uh, doing a kettlebell workout, and I had a, what's called a clay shoveler's fracture. Yeah, which is. The spinous process of the C7 snaps off, and it was I was like 10 out of 10. Woke up one morning and I couldn't even stand up. Fell on the ground. My wife was on call. Had to call an Uber to go to the emergency room, and I got there and I couldn't move, and it was like getting stabbed in the back. and And they gave me a couple of Tylenols and a muscle relaxer. Um, and I, you know, again, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know if that was uh, within the the scope of what was if I would have been an somebody who could have been prescribed something to actually help. But I remember those being, having the effectiveness of Tic Tacs and me just wanting to die and thinking, you know, if this was a few years ago, I perhaps I could have gotten something that in this acute, with this acute issue, you know, I'm not a, I, I've, I don't think I've ever even taken any painkillers or anything, even including post-surgical. Um, this would have, this would have helped. And I was majorly suffering. And I'm imagining people who have a more severe version of what I went through, not being able to get, uh, certain types of drugs because of policy and taking that decision out of the hands of the doctor. And I just, 
That's just again, I'm not a doctor, but that doesn't sound like a good idea to me. It isn't. It's like taking out the steering wheel of a car, and I'm sitting in the driver's seat. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really difficult because then I'll have family members, I'll have nurses, I'll have other doctors telling me that you should give him something now. You can't just use Tylenol or yeah. the other because of the current situation. I'll have nurses telling me, don't give anything stronger than an opioid. Don't give anything stronger than Motrin. Don't give anything stronger than Tylenol. Pretty soon, these young doctors who are being trained aren't going to be as empathic, uh, yeah. sympathetic towards patients in pain. They're just going to say, grin and bear it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, honestly, in reality, I would imagine the answer is somewhere in between, right? Because pain is, it sounds like what you just described with the advent of pain is the fifth vital sign. Like we don't need to ask somebody every 15 minutes if they hurt. And if they say, well, yeah, I'm somewhere more than a two on a scale of one to 10, then we should treat that. Like that probably isn't the right answer, but conversely, maybe a little bit more latitude for physicians who are trained to treat that stuff is in order. Well, you know, we talk about the doctor patient relationship. We've only talked about the doctor so far. Now we need to talk about the patient. Yeah. We need to educate patients. That acute pain that you had needs some sort of strong pain medicine. And then when you don't have pain, you need to not take opioids because you don't have pain. You shouldn't take opioids. 68% of the people in the United States takes, take opioids appropriately. 32% mm -hmm. do not. They take it because they can't sleep. They're depressed. They want to feel better. They want to get high. That's the problem. Right That's a there. huge percentage. It is. One, basically, one third of people take opioids inappropriately. Hmm. Your situation that you just described is an appropriate use of an opioid. And then when you don't have pain, most people would stop their opioid. Yeah. There is one thing I want to bring up at this point. There's a cultural difference. The United States is the only country, well, the United States and Canada now, the only countries that have a huge opioid problem. And it stems back to the fifth vital sign. Hmm. If you look at Germany, you look at China, those people are afraid of opioids, so they will tolerate the pain. But if they have pain, they get education. Doctors educate patients about the risks and complications. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, because I can tell you for my own self, I was on the couch for two days and then I was up and I was fine. And I think, you know, I, and I made it, right? I'm, I'm still alive and I, I, was, I had a 0% danger of opioid addiction because I literally didn't take any because I couldn't get them. But had I had a couple days where I could have taken something to alleviate my acute pain, I definitely would have taken it and definitely would have been happier. But Absolutely. In the big picture, you know, I... I, I'm sympathetic to, I guess, all sides, because as that ER doc who, you know, I'm, I don't know if they're putting their license on the line to like give me a script for something based on the diagnosis that they perceive. Like I'm, I'm sympathetic to that, but it was frustrating for me as the patient. <laughs> and I, to, to give you another piece of uh, information, you know, it's like getting a speeding ticket. You get one, you wait a few years, you're going to speed again. Yeah. Right. But what happens if we treat opioid complications appropriately? You know, we take opioids. We treat nausea, vomiting. We treat constipation. We treat itching. We don't treat respiratory depression. There's a company called Kiwi Pharma. 
it has added a respiratory stimulant that uh, sits alongside of the opioid, which means that it causes uh, functional antagonism. You get pain relief, but you don't block the neuroreceptor, and you give the respiratory stimulant, so you prevent the side effect of the respiratory stimulant. If you take too many, you become very anxious, and you don't want to take those drugs again. Wow, that's genius. So, sorry, go ahead. I would hope that as people think about this, you say it's a genius, but to try to get the medical establishment to change a little bit is very difficult. We've been doing the same thing for the last 20 years, getting the same result. I think outside the box. And, you know, to get the medical establishment to change is very difficult. I know that there's a statistic we cited on the past in the show where the, the lag time between someone conclusively proving something in a, in a rigorous peer-reviewed white paper and the time in which that conclusion is implemented systemically is something like 17 years. Now, I think that that's probably a shrinking number as technology helps to accelerate implementation for things. But that goes to show that institutional change is hard, systemic change is hard, and it's certainly... This is an uphill battle, it seems, which which I want to pivot a little bit and talk about how you're contributing to this. So you had this this ATM realization while you're at the bank. Talk a little bit about what tra- like what was the you know, you went home and maybe got out like a piece of paper and started jotting down some ideas. How did this how did this evolve over time for you? Well, I just thought if a thousand people less than a thousand people die in the hospitals because of uh, a, a smart safe in the hospital. Why, why don't we have that at home? We have a child resistant cap you know my two-year-old grandkid can open a new (laughs) so why don't we have something at home that's just as good and then the fda started talking about it then i put in a a application for a contest so we won the 2018 fda innovation challenge for the prevention and treatment of opioid use disorder awesome Tell, tell me a little bit about that that uh that competition. How'd you find out about it? Um, actually, um, I've been on LinkedIn and somebody from LinkedIn told me, you have a great idea. You should apply for something we're applying to. And it just so happened it was two days away. Wow. I f- filled out the application. And then um, one day I get a phone call and it was from a number in Washington, DC. I answer the phone. And honestly, it sounded like a spam call. Yeah. So I actually hung up. <laughs> and, and then they called again and they said, we want to speak to Dr. Sue. This is the FDA. And I got really quiet because I thought I had done something wrong. Oh, wow. And then they said, are you sitting down? <laughs> and I said, no, um, I'm not. But um, how can I help you? Because um, I'm a practicing physician and, uh, I'm an anesthesiologist. Um, there's an opioid crisis. Um, is there something I can help you with? And then they notified me and then I was in shock for a little while hmm. because they were, I'm the only startup there. I, my company was going up against billion dollar companies. Wow. So talk a little bit about the product and the design and how you came up with all that. All right. So I, you know, 
being a physician and being having a lot of experiences, I, I put everything together from all my experiences. Mm -hmm. Since I write in uh, Go, I write in uh, um, Flutter for mobile apps. Okay. Um, I had an idea of using a mobile app to control an ATM for the home device. So I have a device that uses a mobile app that connects to a device that dispenses opioids. So it's like a car fob that okay. opens the door to a car. Only your fob can open your car. And then if I have a clock on it, only the your fob can open your car at the prescribed time frame. So you can't take more drugs than prescribed. Then I thought, okay, well, if my daughter wants to use my car, she's going to steal my fob, mm -hmm. take my car, and go do whatever she wants. But what happens if I take that fob and make it two-point authentication? So you have a fingerprint on an app, and you have a personal code. Only the person that has that app that's registered can, can access those drugs. Hmm. And the next thing I thought of, well, if my daughter can get into the car just grabbing my fob, then what I should do is destroy the pills in the dispenser. So my dispenser, our dispenser, can actually destroy the pills with a DEA-approved substance to destroy the pills if it's tampered with. And in 90 days, it'll destroy the pills automatically because there's a timer. Hmm. What I'm trying to avoid is the fact that 42 to 71% of post-operative opioids go unused, which means that 3.3 billion pills, not million, billion pills, enter the communities per year. That's why the study that came out of Boston Medical Center this year talks about only 1.3% of the people who overdose on opioids have an opioid prescription. Hmm. Most of the opioids are actually diverted. Wow. So there's a, it sounds like this is a, a two component system. There's an app on your, on your phone, I guess. Right. And then there's a, the dispenser, the box, um, describe like, how did you, how did you, cons are, do you have an engineering background or you have friends who are, and how did you think like materials and construction and how does it work? If you, if you're at Liberty to, I understand that may be a little bit specific for something that's still in, in process. Well, we're actually patented, so I can discuss. Okay. Oh, great. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so here's what, here's the question that I'm thinking is what if I take, and you know, you talked about the fob, maybe I don't need the fob. What if I want to take the box out back with a hammer and try to get the stuff inside describe in that circumstance, what happens? <laughs> There's a small electrical current that surrounds the box, kind of like star Wars. I love star Wars. Okay. I love star Trek. So, you know, that phase around stun mm -hmm. that people talk about, yep. there's a little current that goes through the box on the inside. And if that current is broken, it short circuits. And that short circuit creates an up current that causes a switch to open that floods the pill container with liquids that destroys the pills. Okay. Wow. So it, even if you try to break the device and any box can be broken into, the pills are destroyed when you get into it within is, about 30 seconds. Wow. Okay. That's, that's really, that's really cool. So how, how um, 
talk about the process of like constructing constructing the design and, and everything like that. Well, I have AutoCAD on my computer, so okay. I I'm a programmer. Okay. I had a com I had a company that uh, did uh, physician practice management software with revenue cycle management software and also um, uh, a PAX unit. So I put that together. We took off the shelf software from the U.S. government called Open Vista and okay. changed it, and we were selling it to physicians. Okay. So I was looking at the software at that point. So I understand software. And then the hardware part came because I was tinkering. Um, a long, long time ago, I was a contractor. And I had to build a safe room for somebody who wanted a safe room. And so I started thinking, how do I make a safe room for these opioids? So that's kind of the idea of where that came from. Okay. Wow, cool. Talk a little bit about intellectual property. I know that in, in patenting a design, there's there's a lot of... I, I recently had... I've, I've been involved with my own attorney to try to um, have conversations around some uh, trademark stuff for my company. And it's been probably a very simple version of what you're having to navigate with regards to like technology and product patents and making sure it's... Uh, all the IP is is well defended. Talk about uh, how do you find somebody to help you with that stuff, and what was that process like? It's nice to have friends. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it starts off with I bootstrapped this company. I put five hundred thousand dollars of my own money into this company because it just seems like with the opioid litigation, people don't want to invest in a company that's going to try to prevent the opioid overdose epidemic. People just don't want to. Then they look at me. Then they look. Then they say, um, "You are so scatterbrained because you do so much that we don't feel comfortable with you focusing uh, on one product. We find that you are not what we're looking for in a CEO." You know, and I push back a little bit by saying that you know I have three children. I don't love one children less than the other. I love all three kids. Mm -hmm. So I have a couple of different projects. So I'm using all my experiences as a physician, as a programmer, as a medical device engineer from hobby. I don't have a degree. Yeah. I'm putting them all together. And so it's really a difficult situation. I've been through NIH grants. I've been through, and they have not given me a grant. They have basically told me, your commercialization project is not what we're thinking, or not what we like. Hmm. We think that the big problem is fentanyl and heroin. And my thinking is, am I talking to the NIDA NIH or am I talking to DEA? Yeah, right. Because if you're going to study fentanyl and heroin, then you should understand that 80 to 90% of the heroin and fentanyl users started out by abusing opioids in their youth. So if you're thinking about that, then perhaps you should think about what I'm thinking about, prevention, going to the youth, going to the youth and explaining that, hey, you know, if you have pain, take your opioids as directed. Don't try to use them to get high. 
don't try to take if one pill hurt if one pill helps you with pain don't take two pills to make you feel better take right. it as directed by your physician did you know it's, it's actually a a federal offense to take more pills than directed by a physician i did not know that <laughs> well everyone breaks the law everyone speeds it sounds like a difficult to enforce rule it is and we have it's a difficult thing but with the eye pill you can only take pills as directed right so did you consider at all and i'm curious you know with regards to like a time release kind of function um having it you know maybe spit out a pill every 12 hours or 24 hours or whatever rather than doing the biometric thing and how did you come to like the design that you had sort of uh, landed on yeah uh, well let me back up for one second. I, I don't. I didn't answer your IP question. Oh yeah. Okay. You're right. So really, the the issue is, you know, I have a lot of friends. I have a really good friend. His company is called Entralto, and um, he understands IP. He was a former USPTO patent office reviewer, and he got my patent in within a year, which is unheard of. Wow. Awesome. My company is two years old, and we've gotten a patent. We've gotten an FDA innovation win. We've gotten a breakthrough product designation. And now we're going to uh, Hartford, Connecticut to work with the insurance companies to figure out a, a financial model for reimbursement. Okay. So the IP was very fortunate in getting a good firm who can push it through in a market that is created with I would say between 400 and 700,000 people who have died from opioid overdoses. There's a market need. The IP is there. It was searched out. Actually, I'll tell you a funny story. As soon as I got my patent, I started getting phone calls in the middle of the night. You stole my idea. I was thinking about it. Hmm. But, you know, hey, I'm not about my idea your idea my more about hey then let's work together this this concept this this problem is bigger than you or me mm -hmm. i need all the help i can get the more people that can help me prevent opioid addiction the better yeah. we can save the young generation if we prevent the opioid crisis more yeah. young people are dying and one of the, the, the reason why I know young, more young people are dying is because, you know, there's more open heart transplants. There's more kidney transplants. There's more liver transplants because they're from young people who have died from opioid overdoses. Yeah. So, John, talk a little bit about, from an insurance standpoint, you mentioned you're going to Hartford, the insurance capital of the world. Uh, talk about how... You know, how much does it cost to produce one of these and how much does it cost an insurance company or, you know, once you, how much are you projecting and, and how is the, how does this compare to the cost of, you know, the, the opioid problem and, and what's the sort of the value prop there economically? Sure. Um, I 3D printed the case, the inside, I, I, I bought, you're going to laugh at this. I bought the stuff to make the inside on Amazon. <laughs> And I, Thank you, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yeah. Um, my Arduino chipset, 
bought for a dollar ninety. The BLE uh, chip, I bought for I bought two of them for a dollar thirty. And uh, I bought a servo motor for about um, three dollars and twenty four cents. <laughs> I put it together, and uh, I wrote this some software, and used my fingerprint, personal code, and it started working. Wow. And I put everything on SolidWorks for 3D printing and uh, hired someone to 3D print it, and it works. So the box is very inexpensive to make. At high volume, I can make it cheaper. Mm -hmm. I've actually uh, have a uh, mutual understanding with Enocon, which is an offshoot of Foxconn, which makes the iPill sorry, which makes the iPhone <laughs> and they're going to make the iPill dispenser. Okay. I can make one to 2 million of these a day and the cost is going to go down even more. Wow. You can make so, one to 2 million of your units per day. Once you scale this up, you're saying, right. Wow. Okay. Because what I want to do is have an insurance mandate. So all opioids can be dispensed with the iPill dispenser. Mm -hmm. If an insurance mandate comes through, maybe we have a federal mandate. You know, the I, the uh, child-resistant cap was designed by Dr. Henri Briault in 1967 from in Canada. Less a penny a piece, but it doesn't work anymore. In 1970, the U.S. government made it a federal mandate to mm. protect children. So I'm trying to follow that situation. The opioid crisis has cost the US economy, $635 billion. If I decrease opioid usage by 10%, I can save $335 million. I can increase quality of care, treat patients in pain who actually have pain, yeah. get patients who, with chronic pain to prevent their drugs from being stolen. And I can prevent unused opioids from entering the, the uh, cities and communities to be diverted. Yeah. You know, 10% of 3 billion, 3.3 billion pills, that's 330 million opioid pills that could be destroyed yeah. and not used to have people overdose on them. Yeah. It sounds, I mean, it sounds like an absolute no brainer. So talk a little bit about the cost of system, you know, like when, when somebody, you, I, I saw some of the charts in your, uh, the pitch deck, which I reviewed that was talking about um, the cost of like, uh, you know, ER visits for overdoses or other like system costs pertaining to opioids. Talk about how the cost of uh, the iPill dispenser compares to other systemic costs in the current um, environment. Sure. Um Let's just say the, uh, for the sake of a uh, demonstration, the iPill is 50 to $60. Okay. Um, because I have to have distri distribution costs. I have licensing costs and so forth. Yep. The ER visit for a person who's overdosed is 12,000. If per visit, if you have to be in the hospital, it's 28,000. If you go to inpatient rehab, it's 128,000. For insurance companies, it can cost anywhere from fourteen to sixteen thousand dollars extra per year per subscriber mm. for just opioid dependency, just for the medications alone. 
So from a standpoint of cost, if you're a parent and you have three kids like I do, I would rather pay $50 than $12,000 for my kid to go to the ER. It's just a matter of economics. Yeah. And if you take that inpatient rehab number of 120K plus, and that's something that people go back to again and again and again in many cases, it's easy to see that number getting into the seven figures. Did you know that most people who are addicts actually relapse? Relapse is 90%. So let's say we present to parents and we say to them, let's use this device to prevent your child from getting dependent on opioids and finding your stash of drugs so that they won't become addicts at $50. Yeah. You know, most patients would probably do it. If they don't, what I'm trying to do now is go to uh, Health and Human Services to get a Hicks Fix code, uh, Health Common Procedure Coding System to make the device reimbursable. You know, I have to consider patient economics as well. So if I get this to be reimbursed, maybe the government can help. Maybe insurance companies could help. You know, employers now are, are really looking at how to prevent their employees from getting addicted and getting um, dependent on opioids. So this situation could be a win, 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 win for everyone. No kidding. Kids may not be uh, dependent. Parents save money. Hospitals save uh, money. Politicians could say they solve the problem. And insurance companies could save money. Yeah. $50 for the iPill versus fourteen dollars to $16,000. It could improve profits for them. Our, 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 uh, our economy could save $635 billion from treatment of opioid addiction and loss of worker productivity. Yeah. Awesome. So tell me what's next for your company and, and how are you going to sort of take this from its current state to continue to pursue uh, broad adoption? Well, we need to do a pilot study. So we're going to register the device with the FDA and do a pilot study at Rutgers Dental School. As most people are unaware, dentists are the second highest prescriber of opioids in the in, in, in the country. There's 935 physicians, 935,000 physicians. There's only about 5,000 pain physicians. Interesting to note, the U.S. dentists prescribe 37 times more opioids than the British dentists. Wow. So we're going to start with doing a study at Rutgers Dental School. After that, we're hopefully going to roll out the IPIL through the dental society. After that, we, we wanna go to uh, clinical research organizations and uh, addiction treatment centers because we can try to make addiction treatment an outpatient setting instead of an inpatient setting. Right. Then after that, we hope to have a insurance mandate then a federal mandate. One of the issues that we have for the future is the class two version of the IPIL. 
the class two version involves remote patient monitoring, remote physician access, cognitive behavioral therapy, and then data collection so that we can collect the data for all these situations to try to predict who is at high risk for addiction. And then we can take all that information as big data and manage the population as a whole. This is a nationwide problem. We can take all that data. We can population manage to try to prevent people and the population from being addicts. Yeah, that's that sounds really exciting. One of the biggest issues that most people have criticized the iPill class two is the biosensor. We have a sensor that fits on the skin at the chest that monitors respiratory depression. It's done three different ways to decrease false positive errors. If you're taking an opioid, but you also drink and you take pot and you take heroin and fentanyl, those other drugs will combine with the opioids in the IPL dispenser and cause death. Mm -hmm. You look at most of the celebrities, they have a cocktail of drugs that they take that decrease respiration. So I need to prevent the other opioids from affecting the opioids in the box. If it does, my opioids are protected and the patient can be protected because the app can call 911 alert people to bring in Narcan to save that person's life. Hmm. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Really exciting to think about the possibilities. I think the possibilities are there. I need help. I need people to come in. I, I would like to have a start a super PAC to help people who can think about these things outside the box. If all the doctors in the country came together and said, hey, look, this makes sense. Let's form a super, super pack of physicians because people have blamed doctors for causing the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. Let's let physicians come up with a solution so that we can act like physicians and bring our patients back to this doctor-patient relationship situation. Absolutely. So for all our listeners out there, uh, if you want to learn more about the iPill dispenser. Uh, we're going to post links in the show notes. We'll also post some contact information for John there. If you want to reach out to him, if you have any good ideas, if you want to get involved, if you want to uh, be able to support this uh, this new business in some way, maybe you want to invest. Um, I'm sure he would be uh, interested in having that conversation with you. I'm sure there's people listening, John, that are thinking, uh, th that are really struck with the sort of the arc that you've taken career-wise to be you know clinically involved for a long time and then observing things that you want to change and then starting a business to be able to attack a specific problem which in this case it's the the opioid crisis can you talk a little bit about what kind of wisdom you would want to share or advice for somebody who has a business idea or has a is seeing a problem maybe it's a big problem that they want to work towards solving and they're currently a full-time practicing physician how do you begin to make that transition um, to what, what kinds of things should they be aware of or what kind of questions should they be asking right now? Well, let me tell you a story. This is the best example of how I can do it. When the fifth vital sign came out, people were talking about 
uh, how I was doing multimodal pain therapy 20 years ago. People said, well, you know, why don't you just use an opioid? It's pennies. You're using all these different antidepressants, uh, anti-seizure drugs. No one's doing it. And people took pot shots at me. They said, are you practicing Chinese medicine? And I had to bring papers hmm. into committees to show that these papers are from Americans. Fast forward 20 years, CMS now says that multimodal pain therapy is a measure of quality of anesthesiologists. Yeah. So to answer your question, read a lot, don't sleep very much, <laughs> and have a lot of enthusiasm for other things because just being a doctor is not enough. Yeah. You have to know finance. You have, you know, EMR is something that is, has impacted our, our medical practice. And it's been shown not to be better, but just costly. Hmm. But you've got to know about computers. You've got to know about business. You've got to know about estate planning. You've got to know about a lot of different things. Yeah, that's a lot. And I'm sure, you know, you, and one of the things you referenced is in the areas where you don't have specific technical expertise, like the IP, for example, um, having people that you can go to that you can trust that are on your team that want to pull in the same direction that want to work on the same project or the same business, and to be able to borrow their expertise and their intellectual horsepower to be able to, uh, you know, work on whatever you're, you're building together. It sounds like that's an important piece of the puzzle as well. It is. My wife's father was in practice for almost 65 years as a general surgeon. Whoa. He had no interest other outside of medicine. So when he retired, when he retired, um, he had a medical mishap. And um, when he retired, he had nothing to do. Hmm. When I retire, I want to get a new lease on life. Yeah. You know, people talk about being reborn. I want to be reborn. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And honestly, as you were describing all of your endeavors, I was thinking, John is a Renaissance man. And it's ironic because Renaissance, that's rebirth, right? That's what that word means. So, uh, And to, to, to make it even more interesting as being a Renaissance man, you know, and this part we can, uh, uh, whether we add it in or not, but I actually got baptized in the River Jordan. Really? About a year and a half ago. After that, everything with the eye pill has been positive. Huh. And I sort of think that God is using me as an instrument to help his people in the world to deal with those, this opioid crisis. And that's given me a lot of comfort. And it's given me a lot of help because it just seems like I'm, I'm one person trying to change the world. And the one person that's standing behind me is God. Hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that. And Dr. John Sue, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Great. Well, thank you for having me. If there's any questions or anything, I'd be happy to talk to anyone. Excellent. Thanks. 
If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to anesthesiasuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesiology and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I would also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.